that's raised teenagers, I see a few folks maybe that have raised teenagers yet, you, only you guys kind of understand the pain that I'm in. And so recently, no lie, in cross-country practice, I show up to this to help because we're a family kind of a runners and this really cool 25-year-old cross-country coach at the school is there and he's all ripped and stuff and I'm trying to, you know how we are as dudes, you know, we're, we're trying to, when, especially when you're over 40, you're trying to compare and compete and all this kind of stuff and then my 15-year-old, the way he introduces me is he goes, hey coach, this is my dad. He's really cool. I know he's short and losing all his hair, but he, he has a great job. He gets to make people feel better about themselves all day. And he's kind of looking at me and he kind of wants to laugh. So I just say, I don't think that makes me feel better about myself. Um, do I have an issue with the mic here? Are we, are we good? Am I buzzing? Sorry about that. Test, test, test. I'll just keep talking. I know the, the snow stuff is annoying. So anyway, that's a little bit about what I do. Um, so I have four kids uh, from 15, 14, 11, down to nine. So booking boys, girls in the middle. And uh, so some of you guys uh, that have kids and small kids, you can probably understand the whole crazy world of raising kids. Those of you that uh, haven't been blessed with that yet, or that's kind of in front of you. I'm going to give you a horror story that's called Little League and, uh, and prepare you to try to say no when your wife tries to convince you to sign your kid up for Little League when they turn two. And because uh, in Atlanta, by the way, at Northside Hospital, the baby maker uh, hospital, right, the, the machine, uh, you, you, you get, the baby pops out and they come by and do the uh, nursing consulting and then they do uh, NYO and Buckhead they have the sign up for Little League by the way that's that's literally how early it starts it's kind of crazy so no lie we're at five and we're getting all this pressure to sign our kid up for t-ball and he barely knows what a ball is anyways and even though psychologically in the, the kid development that's not really appropriate until they're about seven but Buckhead doesn't care so they start it at five little did I know that t-ball ended at four no lie, at NYO, T-ball literally stops at four. Coach pitch is at five. Okay, kids can't even catch the ball when they're five. Coach pitch, which means that you, as a, as a dumb-looking dad, you sit there on your knee, and it's like you're throwing darts, right? Because to throw it, and to throw it accurate, you've got to throw it hard. But if you throw it too fast, they miss the ball. So 37 pitches later, when the kid misses every pitch, then they bring the tee out, and then the kid swings and hits the bottom of the rubber thing, and after it wiggles for about 10 seconds, the ball falls off, and everybody cheers! It's a hit! It's awesome! You're an amazing kid! You can hit the stick. Right? So that's Little League. So you can see I have some undealt with issues around Little League. But long story short, uh, the way it kind of works, because a five-year-old can't catch the ball. If they are, that's called the Tiger Woods theory, which you're a phenomenon. Kids can't catch it in the air which makes sense to play baseball at that age. So anyway, what, what they do is the coach says, hey, when the ball comes to you, get your glove down. And when you get the ball, which they don't, because they hold their glove right here, and then it goes between their legs, they run it down, chase it, and they look at the birds, throw mud at each other, and all that kind of stuff. Really, really competitive game. But they say, if you get it the first time, throw it to first base. That, that's the rule. That's, that's it. You get it in your glove, throw it to first base. And the first baseman, because he can't catch, he moves out of the way. And the ball has to land in a five-foot radius of first base. And because nobody can catch the ball, there's never any outs. So the way the rules are is they just let the whole team bat, and everybody goes to base, and the bases are always loaded. 
and everybody just kind of bats, and it means they eventually the 38 pitch is they hit the stick and the ball falls off. You get everybody, you get the scene. That's the scene. So here we are in the final game of the season. My son, who my wife likes to say is athletically disinterested. That's the term she used. He just is not interested in sports, right? That's my oldest son. He can play baseball, he's just disinterested. So he's got his Thomas the Train train set. He's out in left field, and he is building the coolest mud train track way out in left field, has no clue what's going on. So I'm kind of watching this scene take place. And of course, there's never any outs, but the coach's son, who's 14 years old, is, by the way, why is that always, you guys remember that? The coaches, what are they, you know, they don't card these kids. It's like a man-child. The man-child's always a coach's son. That's why the dude coaches. He's proud of his man-child son. So he's on third base. He's six inches off of third. And because he's the coach's son, he's in the perfect position. He's ready. But he is five, actually. So he's kind of looking around and attention deficit. And he has no clue what's happening. Somehow the kid up the bat, somehow he misses the stick and hits the white round thing. <laughs> and he actually hits it in a way that doesn't top it and have it dribble like most of them. He hits it underneath and it actually does this thing where it actually takes flight for the first time ever. We've never seen this before. But no lie, where the ball goes, Chaz, who's the coach's son on third base, who's looking around like this, but his glove's in perfect position, the ball happens to, unfortunately, for the rest of us, but fortunately for him, the ball goes right into his glove. And he doesn't even know it because he's kind of looking around right here. Well, there's like this moment of pause because you're doing, if you're doing, come on, dude, you're doing the calculation. There's never any outs in T-ball. All of a sudden, the ball goes in the glove and he catches it. He's the third baseman and the bases are loaded. But the other team, what have they been trained to do? When you're running the bases, you're trained to do what? Just run. The coach says as soon as that ball's hit, take off. And especially if you're on third base. These kids, they are so excited to do one thing. Slide into home. You guys remember that? Because if you got dirty, you got the award of going to get ice cream afterwards because you played hard. So they're ready to slide in and get all dirty on their deal. So the ball's hit. The, third, the kid on third takes off. He starts running. And the kid on second starts running. Right, so everybody's calculating, and now what are you thinking? Doing the math, there's an opportunity for? Unassisted triple. <laughs> Unassisted triple play. This is brilliant in the making. So, but that's not what any of these kids have been trained to do. This is what's crazy. So all of a sudden, Chaz realizes he has the ball. But because he's the coach's son, he wants to, he's an aspiring pitcher. So what is coach always said to do when you get the ball? Throw it where? First base, yes, and he's a great compliant baseball player, but he wants to be in a pitcher, so he just gets in his pitcher's mouth. He's, he's looking down first base, he's looking at first base, and he just goes into his deal, and coach, his dad knows what he's about to do. He starts to go, he gets that leg hiked, he gets that ball back, and his coach, coach Jeremy comes running out, stop, step on third, Tag the runner! And of course, all the coaches now, all the coaches are yelling, parents, moms, people have no clue about baseball or no some, something to yell at this poor kid, Chaz. Tag the kid, step on the base. He's hearing all these commands. It's kind of paranoia going on. It's just crazy in his head. All of a sudden, the other coaches are doing what? The coaches on the opposite team are saying what? Go back! 
go back. So the coach, run, the, the kid's trying to jump in this, uh, slide into home, and, they, and literally his coach is going, go back, and the kid stop, and he's arguing, but no, he's trying to run around his coach. He had this little scene breaking out. And then he got this kid on second base. So here's the other thing about that you get to look forward to in five-year-old t-ball. They have five-year-olds in t-ball, but they make helmets to fit 12-year-olds. So that's kind of how this goes is the kid on second base who's got this batting helmet, his head is this size and the batting helmet's like this. So his batting helmet, as he starts to run, his batting helmet's doing this. And it's shaking. He's got these new cool like lit up tennis shoes that he's looking at while he's running. And his helmet starts to turn. So he's running, his helmet's doing this and it starts to turn where it's backwards. So he's running from second to third base. His helmet is turned around backwards, and he doesn't care because he's running. He's doing what he's always been trained to do. Long story short, Chaz is yelling at his dad. They're going back in this debate. Chaz is mad, and he finally, he's determined. He gets that, that pitcher's deal. He gets that leg up, and right about when he gets his hand here, the kid at third is still trying to dodge around his coach. The kid from second, who can't see because his helmet's backwards, runs into Chaz because Chaz is blocking third base. But he's got the ball out here, but he's off balance because he's got his leg up. And together, they fall on third base. And he's got a death grip on the ball. So all of a sudden, all the coaches that are so mad and yelling at him to do stuff are now cheering. And his dad's like excited, oh my gosh, because three outs. And by the way, it was the last inning, so the game's over. Not only have we never seen an out, but now, now the game is over. Everybody's running. They're coming. They're pulling kids off. And the funny thing is, of course, my son loved his train track and had no clue what was going on. <laughs> so so they, pull, they pull these kids off Chaz, and Chaz has got these big, huge tears, these big tears coming down his face because he didn't get to do what he was trained to do, pitch the ball to first base. So he pushes his dad all the way. He runs almost to second base and gets that wind up and pitches a mean strike into first base. Nobody's there. <laughs> so long, quick little deal. That was hilarious. We're laughing about it. Everybody's laughing. We're high-fiving. It's the funny thing. We're talking to Chaz. We get in the car. We have Joey. Of course, Joey missed the whole scene, so we're trying to kind of relay, hey, son, this is kind of what happened in your game. And we're laughing about it, and all of a sudden, my wife drops this bomb after I'm having fun with this story. So about halfway home, after we get about as much laughter out of this story as we can, my wife kind of looks at me, and she says, you know, as funny as that is, I'm sitting here and I can't help but to hold Chaz's face in my memory and the panic and the stress that he was carrying on his face because he didn't know what to do. There were so many things he had to do, so many things he had to focus on. Everybody had these expectations for who he needed to be and what he needed to do instead and he was so stressed. And I'm like, uh-oh, what is going on? And I go, honey, like a good husband that I've learned through smart people in marriage counseling have said to say, tell me more. So I say, tell me more. And she just says, I feel like that is how we are living our life right now. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 hold on, what? And of course we get home, Joey goes off to his room and I say, let's go, let's go chat. And she's like, I feel like we are living our life 
in such a hurried, frenetic, frantic, panic pace. And I can't do it like this anymore. And when your wife says that, you hear that and you go, whoa. And we had just moved here from California. We're grad school. We came here, take a job. And I'm trying to build up a, an organization and lead. And I'm just putting all my effort, all my intensity, all my pursuit of excellence into my profession, into my job. And it was, it's a nonprofit and it's a counseling center and it's this awesome cause. You should be so excited that I'm putting all this energy and all this intensity into, this, into leading this organization. And she's trying to get the kids in school. We kept having babies and we're sleep deprived and we're always tired, always. Anybody have new babies? Anyone about to have a new baby? I just remember always being tired, always being half, half awake during the day. It's exhausting. So that was our pace. That was our lifestyle. And we were not doing anything to stop it, to guard against it. We were experiencing what I now am terming when I'm working with folks that I call it, I call it drift. It's just called drift. We can just simply let the busyness of life get us running at such a hurried, frenetic pace that we become hurried. And hurry is an internal condition of our soul. Busyness is an external condition. If we don't do anything about what busyness does to us, it can trickle in and erode our soul. There's this uh, quote that John Ortberg writes about one of his mentors. Dallas Willard. Um, and I got to meet Dallas Willard. He went to our church out in L.A. When I, when I lived out there, got to sit under some of his teaching. And so in a way, he was a teaching mentor to me. And he said this quote that forever changed my perception. He said, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Why? Because hurry will erode our souls. And John recently wrote a book, a tribute to Dallas, because Dallas had passed. And he basically curated all of Dallas's mentoring wisdom in a book. It's called Soul Keeping. And it had a powerful effect on me several years ago when we were trying to adjust our pace of life. Hurry. If not guarded against will erode our soul. So we must, as men, defy drift and tend to our souls. Um, he writes, Ortberg in his book, I'm just going to read this excerpt because it makes me feel like he's describing me. John Ortberg says this. He said, there's a kind of fatigue that attacks the body. When we stay up too late, rise too early, when we fuel ourselves with coffee and donuts for breakfast and Red Bull for lunch, when we refuse to take time to exercise and eat foods that clog our brains, when we constantly try to guess which checkout line is faster and which car and which lane will move faster, our bodies grow weary. There's a kind of fatigue that attacks the mind. When, we're when we are bombarded all day with gripes, issues, complaints at work, when we carry mental lists of tasks not yet completed, bills not yet paid, 
and emails not yet replied to, our minds grow weary. And then he says this, there is a kind of fatigue that attacks the will. We have so many decisions to make. What clothes will create the best impression? Which foods will bring us the most pleasure? Which task will work, uh, at work will bring us the most success? Which activities will make us the most happy? Which people we dare to disappoint today? Which events we must attend? What vacation will bring my family the most enjoyment? In that place, our wills grow weary. And this is what he calls soul fatigue. Our what we are vulnerable to as men that care about excellence. And that's a good thing, guys. God, God built that DNA in you. Somehow your story and the things and the people in your life have influenced you to care about excellence. That's a good thing. That's a God thing. However, when we let that obsession with achievement drive our pursuit... That obsessive pursuit of achievement can leave us with a diverted, distracted, exhausted soul. So here's the thing. Satan can't make us sin, but he can make us busy. And either way, our soul will deteriorate. And he wins. So I was trying to think this group and I, I sat back here several different times and kind of sat in the back and kind of was a kind of a little in the shadows and go, what's going on here? I love what's going on here. Who's here? And I thought, man, when I'm in my late 20s and early 30s and starting my family, I look back and go, what did I need to hear most? What I needed to hear most that I was not focused on was that what was most important in life is not what I'm going to achieve. That what is most important in life is the person I become. And, I, and when I read that quote, that's another Dallas Willard quote. In that book, Soul Keeping, John said the biggest thing that turned him around is when Dallas kept saying over and over again, the, what matters most in life is not what we achieve. What matters most in life is the person we become. And kind of my question for all of you tonight, right now, how you're moving through life, where are you potentially at drift, personally? And if you don't feel like you're drifting by the way you're moving through life, by the things that claim your attention and your energy and your time, if you don't change anything, where are you vulnerable to drift happening in your life? So the last thing I'll leave you with, and this is encouraging. So we have uh, you know, the example of Jesus. And I love in Matthew 22, somebody, uh, when Jesus was teaching in the square, they asked him, hey, Lord, what do you say is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment, right? And Jesus is about to speak, right? So all the things Jesus said is pretty cool. But when he's going to say the greatest commandment, that's, kind of, that's got more leverage to it, probably, right? The greatest thing. So he just says this. To love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Four ways. With all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then, number two, love your neighbor as yourself. 
It's interesting that loving your neighbor, outward leadership, outward focus is number two. So what, the way that reads is what precludes outward focus and outward pursuit and outward leadership, what precludes the outward focus is loving the Lord your God. How? In four ways. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then we see in Luke 2.52, it says how Jesus even grew up himself. He grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and favor with others. So these four ways that how we guard against drift. And then I, and then I want to you know, hear some questions from you and we'll kind of talk a little bit about that because I'm, I'm really fascinated to know, is this even relevant? Does this even line up with some of the things you're just wrestling with as a man, as a husband, as a, as, uh, or a potential husband, as, a, as an executive, as a leader, as a grad student, um, as a worker, whatever it is for you, how is this relevant for you? But these four ways, spiritually, how are we taking care of ourselves spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally? By taking care of ourselves in those four ways, that is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength, which precludes loving your neighbor as yourself. I'll kind of close with this story, and then we'll have some um, time for some questions. I was uh, in grad school in the clinical side when I was studying counseling and uh, clinical work, and especially marriage. I was really fascinated with marriage. And my parents are divorced, and so ever since then, that was kind of something for me that I wanted to know, what, how, what's this whole marriage thing? What makes marriages last? So we actually had a, a, a course on marriage that they said, hey, you have an assignment, a research assignment, that you got to interview all these couples in each stage of life, and you got to find couples that have been married 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And in California, it's hard to find someone married 50 years. And lo and behold, someone one street behind us, somebody had heard about somebody, whatever, that this couple had been married more than 50 years. Actually, they'd been married 61 years. They were in their mid-80s. He was a year older. And the question was, how did you do it? What's the secret sauce? How did you guys stay married so long? So I'm interviewing him. We're having the con this fun. And he just kind of dominated. He just kind of said, well, Sonny, um, I'm not going to tell you anything before age 50 because everything I did was wrong. <laughs> Luckily, she had grace with me and we stayed together. But ever since my 50th birthday, I got real serious and, and radically intentional about doing four things every week. And I'm like, oh, man, this is great. I'm going to get all this great wisdom. Some of you guys are already starting. What are those four things? And I said, great, what is it? You know, all this wisdom. He said, well, every Thursday, we volunteer together and we tutor the neighborhood kids at the, through the church or whatever. Okay, cool, tutoring, that's kind of cool, okay. And he said, every Saturday, um, we, we, uh, uh, we, we, we go down and, and help our neighbors and, at this club and this community and all this kind of stuff. Oh, that's great. And he said, every Sunday we go to church. That's all part of it. Great. And he said, on Monday nights, we eat salmon together. So I'm like, okay, I'm not really hearing some really cool stuff. But I'm like, okay, okay, salmon, healthy eating, maybe that's why. And now I'm seeing the, 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 his wife kind of squirm a little bit. And she's kind of starting to get like this. And he goes, but on Tuesdays, and she gets real embarrassed. And he goes, every Tuesday night, we take a shower together. <laughs> and I didn't know whether to like be weird or uh, or gross or is that cool or is that like I didn't know what that was 
But the bottom line is, he found a way to care for what mattered most, the person he wanted to become, and who they wanted to become as a couple. What matters most in life is not what we achieve. It's the person we become. So I'm just kind of interested to hearing from you. We have some Q&A time. I'd love to hear how does this resonate? What other questions? We can go deeper into those four areas. We can go deeper into how, how do you, in your place of life right now, how do you guard against drift? How do you, how do, you do that? Um, I had a question about it was one of your four areas. Um, in terms of how do you how to take care of yourself emotionally, you know, as men, what do you think, what does that look like? So the question is, how in those four areas, how, what does it look like as men to take care of yourselves emotionally? Um, you know, especially, is it just being, having a lot of empathy and feeling and all that kind of stuff and, and faking it with your wife? Yes, actually, that's, that's kind of what it is. Um, no, so, uh, the, yeah, the, so the emotional life is basically being able to kind of tune in and understanding what you're what you're feeling, what other people are feeling, and your mood, like being tended to your mood. And a lot of where that comes from and understanding, you know, is it okay to walk around angry all the time? Or do we need to understand more higher level of emotional intelligence? But how do you take care of yourselves, I think, as men, is you put yourself around the right kind of people. And I think that's a huge thing emotionally. Mo the emotional part of us caring for ourselves is very relational. In nature we learn those emotions through the people that we're hanging out with um, one of the things that I can't remember where I read it years ago uh, but it had some scientific data to it so to me that it seemed like it counted and it said we end up becoming like the five people we hang out with the most I'm sure you guys have probably heard that or read that in a book somewhere that's powerful how do you how do you cultivate those kind of relationships who are the people you're putting yourself around what are they like and those kind of things probably, those are, those are some of the ways I would say as men that we care for ourselves emotionally. I mean, there's a lot of probably little habits and, and rituals and things that some of you guys probably do really well. We could probably get a lot of tips from groups that are doing that. What else? How do we get our spouses on board to kind of fight against this, this rush? Yeah, so the question is, how do we get our spouse to buy into the guardian against drift, right? Because yeah. if, if life is just happening to us, if you're married, you can't just make that decision on your own to change your routine and how you do that. It's a great question. Um, I, for us, it was that pain point. I think, I think drawing attention to, if your lives as a couple are moving in such a way where you look at it and go, wow, we are just, we're, we are li living, our schedule is a little frenetic, and we're drifting from each other or just our health, then you probably have some pain together as a couple. What's the impact of that right now in our lives? What are we missing because of that? What's the trade-off? Right? It's kind of a trade-offs conversation. This is what we do in business really well. Strategy is all about trade-offs. We're saying if we want to invest here, put more time here, allocate here, what are we going to not do? If we want to be really great 
at something here? What are we going to intentionally choose to be bad at so that we're great over here? Well, that conversation with your spouse is, first of all, going, what are, where are we kind of sucking right now as a couple? What are we, because we've taken our eye off of things that matter to us, that got us connected and made us come alive together as a couple, what are we not tending to? And what's the impact on our connection? Believe me, you ask that question of your wife, you're probably going to get lucky tonight, but, I mean, wait, did I say that out loud? But, but you're probably, you're probably going to be calling out something most likely she already intuitively feels. That's my bet. And so the conversation most likely, but talk about together, you agree on the painful impact and remind yourselves of what you want to be about. And that gap creates the motivation to close that gap, to do something different. What else? Yeah. Yeah, um, feel free to let me know if this is a little too personal or anything. Uh, but I'm curious to know, I'd love to hear kind of some of your own personal experiences with Drift and kind of what you did individually to overcome there and, uh, you know, your successes and failures in that department. That's great. So my own personal, how have I overcome Drift? Um, <clears throat> and it's things that I've done personally, right? Well, Drift keeps happening. Here's the other thing about drift. Drift is not a one-time event that happens and then you're over it. Here's a great example. I was actually um, down at Chick-fil-A headquarters on Monday speaking with a, a group on this whole idea of drift. And I said, it's so ironic that every time I talk about drift, I find myself in the middle of drift. Right? In fact, I did a, I did a talk on sleep and I didn't sleep the whole night before. How weird is that? It just always happens to me. I, I don't know if that's some kind of humbling effect or not. So we just got back from a vacation of 10 days over in Italy. I've never been there before, just my wife and I. We were as, as connected as I've ever been. We come back from Italy last week, and we hit the craziest our schedule as parents of four kids have, has ever been last week, and I don't think we saw each other but twice in the last eight days. So drift right now, my friend, is literally, it's happening. So part of it is, are there some rituals that those rituals intentionally create time to build new habits. And so for me, when I turned 40 seven years ago, um, I had to build, I had to become a morning person. I never was until then. I always thought when you get old, you become a morning person, because my dad always was. But that didn't happen. When I turned 40, I didn't become. Long story short, I had to build a ritual. That morning time, 90 minutes in the morning before my rest of my family wakes up, is me looking at some things, reading some things to remind myself of what matters most to me. That's just what I do. And I do that every morning, except maybe Saturdays. <laughs> and during that time, over the last couple days, I'm reminded that what do I need to do differently because over the last four or five days, we've drifted. And so those rituals are my own course correcting time to go, hold on, what are we, how did we let this happen? What do we need to do immediately to course correct? And I've already had that conversation with my wife two days ago. And so we're, we adjusted. We made some adjustments this week. But if you don't have something like that to step off, it's kind of like if you're racing really fast, you need a little um, to take a, you know, pull off the side of the road and reorient yourself. So that's one way that I've had to do that over time. Sometimes she'll remind me. <laughs> And she'll say, hey, I think we need a date. And I'm like, uh-oh. It used to be, can we go for a walk? And that told me, okay, well, I'm kind of in trouble here. 
What are, what are some other questions? Purpose has, has everything to do with it, right? So at the, so at the base layer, so <clears throat> even in the corporate literature, which they call uh, the corporate athlete, Harvard Business Review put this out about 10 years ago, they have spiritual as one of those four elements. It's amazing that now in the general business literature, spiritual, what they, what they connote as spiritual, though, more than faith, it's a bigger purpose. It includes faith, but it's a bigger, guiding, huge, compelling, awesome, energy generating purpose that we have to align and go what is our ultimate purpose what is our ultimate mission what do we really truly want to be about at the end of the day and that is everything so here's here's a little way i cheat because i love my job i love working i love what i do i love working with my clients and i love just hitting those targets so now that my kids are kind of older and they do homework and stuff it's easy when i get home that when everyone's busy, they're doing homework, and I got a little free time, I'll whip out my little laptop or my iPad, and I'll get some emails done. I cheat. I violate my own sense. So now what I do is when I, when I do that, and I realize if I catch myself, I realize that I have an excuse, a story in my head that says, well, I can get some more done, it's okay, nobody's doing anything. And then I have my purpose statement in my head that I've had to pull out that says what I want to be about is an inspiring father and husband in my home. And I have these four amazing kids and a wife and I'm home and I have an opportunity to inspire greatness in the people around me. And then it's hard to justify that email. So purpose has everything to do with recourse correcting the little ways we like to cheat on that stuff. Absolutely. So you have don't drift, but going forward. Yep. You know, man, you want to be, but you know, put flesh on it. Yeah. Yeah. What I what I see is, <clears throat> if I'm not connected to uh, lordship and understanding that he that 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 God is the Lord of my life, and He is where I draw my energy, He is where I draw that 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 source of motivation and energy for me to connect with my purpose. Otherwise, I'm just going through, I'm just, I just get caught in, I will convince myself of lies that it's all me, that I just need to grit it out, and then I need to hustle, and then I need to hit these financial targets and accomplish my goals without connecting and staying rooted and being reminded of who God sees in me, which is not what I achieve. And that's why that, that's why that quote connects so well for me because in my faith I am reminded by the way God sees me he didn't give a rip about what I achieve he gives a, a care deeply about the person I'm becoming and the kind of impact and influence that that could potentially have does that, does that make sense so it's a prayer connection absolutely yeah. if your wife today could send one piece of advice back to you on your wedding day, what do you think it would be? That's a great like date night question, man. I'm gonna write that down. Was that amazing? If my wife today could send me 
a, a, one, one bit of advice, bit of advice. to give me 18 years prior on our wedding day. Gosh, I don't know. I need to like, I wish I was in the crowd like stewing on that for a second. Do what? I threw it at my wife the other night. Okay. What did she say? Do you want to, do you want to answer it? What did she say? No, she said, I got to think about it. That's ridiculous. I got to think so about it. I don't know where to start. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I could probably try to answer for my wife, but I would wonder, I, I, that's, I'm going to go ask her. Yeah. Yeah. That could be dangerous. You know, it's so funny. I was, working with a, I was working with a group of leaders, and we were out on a retreat. We're on a back patio. We're doing Q&A like this. And I just threw out this. I don't know how it hit me. I threw out this question. I just said, you know what? If you send a text, let's just say hypothetically right now, if you send a text to your wife, because they're all high achievers. If you send a text to your wife right now and said, if you, if you gave me a scorecard, a grade on, how, on being a husband, you know, what do you think? And I did that more to stir up, you know, how do you, how do you think she would answer? Well, one dude, lo and behold, behind me did that. In the middle of the group, he texted. And about, about 10 or 15 minutes later, he interrupts. He goes, hey, guys, I kind of just got a text back from my wife. I texted her. And now the whole group's like going, what? And he reads it, and he just says, she said, are you serious? And then he had some little dialogue with her. And finally she said, are you sure you really want to know? And, and he kept pushing, and then the last text was, how about we set up a time to talk about that? And he didn't know what he was getting into in the middle of the group. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what she'd say. I think probably now we're so, we're so aware that drift is, is, is our enemy, and it just happens, and it pulls us attention. I think she would say that we would need to establish a vision for our marriage and our rituals and habits to perpetuate that vision right after we got married. We did it on our 10th year anniversary. So we had those first 10 years where we were just running around like chickens with our heads cut off, just chasing the dream, chasing school, job, work, kids, and trying to compete and compare ourselves. And I think she would say those 10 years, we were not rooted in any kind of purpose for who God wants us to be. And, and what we did on our 10th year forward, and we do that every year, we have a ritual every year on our anniversary where we re-look at who we are and what we want to be about going forward that year. So she'd probably mention, I think, but as I say that, if I'm ever invited to come back, I'll, 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 I'll give you an answer to what she said, because I'm now, I'm fascinated by the question, I'm going to ask her. And that's a great question. He, he said, coming from a divorced family, how am I guarding against not doing in my marriage what my... So here's a... It's a little tricky. So I grew up... My, my parents didn't get divorced until I was 22. So in my home, they were together. What I realized later is they faked it for many, many, many years. Um, and what, when I finally got their story looking back, it was a story of drift. They drifted apart. And I will tell you, as long as... I think this last year I tallied it up just because I, I read that book, Anders, Anders Ericsson years ago, had that research on 10,000 hours. When you do something deliberately the right way for 10,000 hours, you have mastery over it. So I remember somehow in marriage counseling about two years ago, I hit my 10,000th hour in marriage counseling. And, and so I was like, what have I learned? 
And one thing I learned was every single couple, regardless of if they're trying to improve themselves or they've had divorces or they've had um, affairs, affairs do not exist in a vacuum. All of those stories started somewhere upstream. They started drifting slowly apart. And that was the one thing. So I would, I would say, even in my own parents' marriage that I learned way after just having deep conversations with my parents over several years, in my own experience, that, that resonates. And my dad ended up actually having an affair, and that's why they, they ended. They didn't try to work on it. But hit, that affair did not happen in a vacuum. I'm not excusing it, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. And there's deep drift. His soul had deteriorated. He wasn't connected to the Lord. He wasn't connected to men of faith in a community and people to remind him of who he was and who, what his purpose is. And so guarding against drift is a huge passion of mine, also informed because of my parents. Thanks for asking that. Do we have time for more questions? You're going to... Yeah, gonna... last one, and then we have time for one more. Okay. Um, so I feel like you had a, a clean break out of California, moved to Atlanta, had a new life, picked your friends, essentially. And I'm one of the guys who grew up in Atlanta my whole life. I have all these guys that I've gone to school with for way too long. They're just my boys, right? They're, they're, they're my buddies. We're comfortable. We cut up, we laugh, we do whatever. They're not necessarily guys that, you know, hold me up, hold me accountable, make me better. My wife has her crew from college. Same thing. I mean, we love these people. They're our, they're our closest friends. But how do you break out of that a little bit? And I've done that through Purpose on Tap, but, um, and, you know, going to church and picking, finding people isn't. I mean, that's, that's a great, that's a longer answer to that question. That's a great question. How do you find, how do you find that people? I had that clean break in coming here. How do you find the people that are the five people that you want to be like? Um, I, I would just, I'm not sure there's a lot of probably great answers here. I don't know that I'm the gospel on that. But I, I think if you're bold enough that when you sense, when you're around men, that I'm just really wildly fascinated with inspiring men. And when I'm around, a, I don't care whether it's a social setting, it's a church setting, it's a community like this. Somehow, if I, I watch people and I'm talking to people, if somehow I interact with somebody that I think there's something just really inspiring about that guy, I find a way to get together with him. And then I find out, how are you, you know, what's going on for you? Because if somebody else inspires me, I want to know, what do they do? You know, how do they, and if there's a community they're part of or a group they're part of, I want to go, well, I want to be part of that. That, is that, that, that water sound, you know, probably tastes pretty good. Where'd you get that water? You know, I want some of that. Right. And, and I think that that's, that, so there's a bunch of different ways. You know, if there are groups and communities like this and you're meeting people to go, hey, I just want more of that. And eventually in conversations, and when you're bold enough, is the last thing I'll say, at some point you need to take a risk and be transparent or vulnerable enough with what matters to you, like in an inspiring way, and see who draws to that. And then that just, there begins to be some attraction, like attracts like, 
And that's when you know, okay, let me pursue this a little bit more. Let me nurture this and see where that leads to. Wow. <clears throat> um, gosh, I love to read, and I just, I, I, I just pull in tons of information. And in fact, somebody um, this, earlier today was asking me some books I'm reading uh, lately that were inspiring. My books last year and this year that have been most inspiring, Essentialism by Greg McCown, if you haven't read that, about getting down to the most essential things that matter most. Grit by Angela Duckworth. I just read psychology leadership books. I love that stuff. I would say from a Christian leadership perspective, though, when you said staple, that's what rooted me to this one. There's a book, the tiny little book called In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nowen. And that book convicted me on what matters most. Um, but this book, Soul Keeping, was a powerful book that came out. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different things. Power of moments, cheap and and, and uh, Chip and uh, Dan Heath right now being a moment as a dad. I'm trying to create moments for my kids and be intentional about that. Um, so there's a lot of different things that are pretty cool. Um, there's actually a lot of the leaders that I'm working with now. I've actually assigned them summer reading. Boys in the boat. Have you guys read that? It's the story of the University of Washington rowing team that went to the 1936 Olympics. And I'm not a rower, and I want to become a rower now. Like, I totally want to get into rowing. And I want to get my, kid, my son into rowing. It's, it's really cool. It's not a fiction, clearly. It's a true story, but it's not like a business book. But how these nine men come together and their stories individually, and then how they form this team thing they call swing, where they're all in sync. And that whole deal, man, I was like, every leader I know, I want them reading that book. So that's actually my... That's actually the book I just finished because I read it in, on my Italy trip, so that was cool. Anyway, hey, I'm going to stick around. love to talk to you guys. Uh, I love this group. I love the purpose that you guys are about, and I know they're going to talk probably more on what to do, and just keep feeding it. Feed this. If it nurtures something in you. If you showed up tonight, my bet is because you have an appetite for guarding against drift and being around men that remind you other things matter more than achievement. Thank you.